intentional. What would what is uh, what comes to mind when you hear that word? I love that word. I think that's a, a really important thing to think about. And for me, as I said, ever since I've been in the working world, my intention, hopefully I've made some progress on that, is to do something that makes other people's lives better. Because I think there is nothing for me, and I suspect for most people, that makes you feel better about the life you've lived than feeling that you've made other people's lives better. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Welcome back, everybody, to another Intentional Growth episode. We've got an amazing episode in store for you today. We have Corey Rosen, who is the founder of the National Center for Employee Ownership, also known as the NCEO. And Corey is one of the founding pioneers when it comes to employee ownership. He's been in the game since the early 80s. He's worked as a Capitol Hill staffer, dove into the academic world of political science, and has spearheaded initiatives that have completely transformed how we think about company ownership. And a few points of why Corey is such an intriguing guest that uh, you should be excited about is the first is he's got a unique advantage of having worked both in the political arena as well as academia, giving him a multifaceted view on the subject. And next is he's the leading pioneer for employee ownership since the 80s. Truly, he was responsible for drafting the policy revisions for the 1042 tax deferral, very similar to the 1031 exchange. So he brings a wealth of experience and most importantly, historical context to the conversation. So a lot of times you hear stories about back then or things have evolved. Well, he's been along for the entire journey. So he brings a ton of context to the table within those stories. And then the last point is that Corey has real world evidence to back up his claims, citing successful case studies like SRC, like Jack Stack and countless others, revealing even how private equity firms and venture capitalists are hopping on board to the concept of employee ownership and how it impacts capitalism and the future of our country and wealth. So today we're going to be diving deep into the world of employee ownership, and we're going to explore how these types of plans can help reinvent capitalism and what it means to be the owner of an asset as well as serving as a game-changing strategy for owners looking for an exit option that protects their legacy, empowers their employees, and redistributes wealth in a way that, believe it or not, is actually completely approved by both political parties and actually gets them excited. So if you're intrigued by the idea of disrupting the traditional models of company ownership and what it could actually do for our country and capitalism as a whole, then I think this is an episode that you're not going to want to miss. One last thing before kicking off into the episode is you, you've probably gotten wind that Arcona launched a financial dashboard offering last year, and it's been growing significantly. And this dashboard offering is a lower price point than our fractional CFO services, and it integrates all your financials, your payroll data, and some custom data. And we build out a financial roadmap to your target equity valuation, and it comes with two calls every month. One is a full financial review meeting, and the other one is a strategic meeting doing scenario planning into the future. And if you're interested in exploring what that would look like, we offer a complimentary financial assessment. 
And if you're willing to schedule a discovery call with me and my team, you can find the link in the show notes below. We'll jump on a call. We'll talk about your situation and I'll ask a couple questions. And if it's a fit, I'll tee up to my team where they'll analyze your company, your numbers, and you'll get a look at the dashboard. And at the end of that assessment, you can either proceed to engage with us or not. And there's no, there's no risk whatsoever to say, hey, it's not a fit. But if you're interested, go schedule a discovery call below. So without further ado, here's my interview with Corey Rosen. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash. The reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term. Whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor, whether that's sell part of it or some of it, essentially just have as many choices as you want. But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going. But we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Corey, good afternoon. How are you? Ryan, thank you so much. I'm great and delighted to be doing this. I'm so excited. Uh, the fact that uh, you and I had not uh, been formally introduced or cross paths up until recently is somehow a, a shock and miracle to me but i was i'm so excited that, you know understanding your background you've been at this for a long time i think you could be credited probably as the father of employee ownership or the grandfather however you want to be labeled well, at this uncle <laughs> oh, there you go i like it i like it so uh, i'm very excited to be speaking to, to you because of how much history you have behind this topic of employee ownership and Corey, when you had sent me the LinkedIn message about your book and your passion behind reinventing capitalism through employee ownership, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait <laughs> to talk to Corey. So with uh, for the listeners that might not be aware of you or your background, you want to just kind of give us a 50,000 foot overview sure. of what you've been up to? So again, my name is Corey Rosen and I'm the founder of an organization called the National Center 
for employee ownership. We are a nonprofit, 501c3, that specializes in providing really good information about how all forms of employee ownership work. But we focus on broad-based employee ownership, not just ownership for executives. I started the organization in 1981. Prior to that, I'd worked on Capitol Hill and drafted some of the pieces of ESOP legislation. And prior to that was an academic. And you've been at this for, like you said, since the pretty much almost the inception. What got you so intrigued with the entire topic of employee ownership, Corey? Because I think about in, in the, the context behind the question is like now, especially with the book and the concepts that you're talking about now, it's becoming, I think, very obvious why there needs to be a change. But back then, like what, what got you onto this? So I was bored one day in my job as a <laughs> Capitol Hill staffer. And if you're really bored, you might be desperate and read the congressional record. And there was, <laughs> there was this testimony at a hearing by a very famous professor, William Foote White. And if anybody had taken sociology, they'd read his book, Street Corner Society. So I knew who he was. I, thought, well, I should read this. And it was a testimony about employee ownership. Employee ownership, what's that? And I was fascinated because I always wanted to find some cause to work for. That's, that was the only thing that really interested me was to find something that could make the world better. And working on Capitol Hill, you realize very quickly that if you're really going to make change, that two criteria need to be met. One is that the idea actually needs to make a difference to people. And the second is it needs to be politically doable. There are lots of ideas that are one or the other. There are only a few that are both. And that's even more true now. But employee ownership looked like one of those ideas that, well, Republicans can like this because it's more capitalists. And Democrats can like this because it's more social justice. I also thought, well, if the employees own the company, the company probably will perform better. That's good for everybody, good for the communities, good for the companies, good for the employee owners. And if the employees own the company, they'll have more wealth security and maybe they'll be treated with more dignity and respect at work. And if they're treated with more dignity and respect at work and have more voice, well, maybe the company will actually perform better and we get into this wonderful virtual circle. So I thought this is a really interesting idea. At the time, it was a very new idea and not very many people knew about it. The legislation that created it had been created just four years earlier. So there was a long way to go. So that's how I got interested. And I was hooked and really pretty quickly decided I'm going to figure out a way to spend my life on this. Was there anything in your background that like, because I like because I lo I love the long noble purpose because then it just can make one heck of a fun life. I really yeah. like I I really um am aligned with you on that. Was there something from your background where this topic seemed like an interesting horse to ride? Well, not necessarily. I was a political scientist, and one of the things that was a very current idea at the time was that democracy through government was being replaced 
by corporations, multinational corporations, that had tremendous power, really quasi-governmental power. And an issue was going to be emerging, and already was emerging then, that democracy might be threatened by those sorts of emerging power sources. And we were already starting to see a phenomenon that, of course, has really grown on steroids since then, we can talk more about, where wealth was concentrating in the hands of fewer and fewer people, especially at the heads of these companies. So how do we change that? Well, one way we could change that is by making the corporation itself a more democratic organization. I don't mean that the employees are electing the board and running the company, but that they have voice and that somebody will listen to them about their ideas. So when I saw employee ownership, that really resonated with this broader concern. Mm. I can't even, like all of those reasons and why I'm passionate about this, I can't even imagine what you've watched happen over the last 40 years of where the, like the power and the, the inequality has, I mean, it's, it's a it, capitalism democracy is in jeopardy and I, and I really I'm agreeing. Is. Yeah. And, and like the real, like really influential people that I follow are starting to, you know, to sound the, the, the alarm as well. And I want to get to that, but first kind of going back to like, you, so you had said the legislation had passed four years prior to you. 1974 on was okay. when the, the big legislation that created the main form of employership, not the only, but the main form, the Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP, was passed. And that would prove to be the first of 17 different bills that would be passed over the ensuing decades to encourage employee ownership. Interestingly, if you look at all those bills, and there are some states that have passed employee ownership laws recently as well, a very encouraging trend. If you look at those bills, every single one passed either unanimously or maybe there was some stray opponent here or there. This was the kind of thing that Ronald Reagan and Ted Kennedy thought were, was a good idea. As a friend of mine once said, it's the only thing all three Jesses, Helms, Ventura, and Jackson, ever agreed on. Uh, most recently, there was a bill whose primary sponsors were Tommy Tuberville and Elizabeth Warren. I don't Is think crazy? Tommy Tuberville and Elizabeth Warren will ever be on the same piece of paper ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did they that even agree what color the sky is? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Isn't it? Keep going. So, so the legislation really was was just sort of creating the core framework, and then over the years, more and more incentives were passed around employee ownership. So, the political viability of the idea really has been established over and over again. It's a. Uh... It's the actually the running joke when I do our boot camps or the virtual academies, Corey. Where I'm like, it's the only thing that's bipartisan these days, and everybody laughs because it's actually the truth. And and it's it's uh it's there's so much control within the the power of the entrepreneur who can create a good company too. And I just I just love so so Corey. Here's a as we as we unpack this topic of. ESOPs and incentives, ownership, and I'd read the excerpt from your book. I just, I just, I literally love it. Is uh, 
I get super passionate, Corey, about incentive alignment. I would say like that's like one of my driving forces of like because unpacking like where are things misguided because people will run like crazy through walls towards their incentives and then you realize after a long period of time when the incentives are off basis and I think that's what we've watched over the last you know a handful of decades of those incentives that were set up in the structure of the system have been being executed by people which have led to this, you had uh, worded it like the quilt of ownership or I can't remember how you worded it. Um, do you wanna explain just this broad base in ownership, your, your thoughts sure. on ownership? Sure. So let's think about where we are today with the concept of ownership, capital ownership and where we've come. I think a lot of us grew up and maybe still do with the notion of Capitalist ownership is the person who starts a business and owns the company. Or maybe the investor who invests in a company with a long-term perspective. Those things obviously still exist and are still really important parts of the economy. But they're not the main attributes of capital ownership today. You've got three. You do have that element of the the, you know, the privately held companies owned by individuals or families, often with long-term investors. And they, that's a significant part of the economy. But the two bigger parts of the economy, at least one is bigger and one is approaching as big, are public company ownership. And I want to put that in quotes. What does public company ownership mean? Well, for most of us, it's something we invest in the 401k plan. And we are owners in much the same way that somebody going to a racetrack and betting on a horse is. We're not invested in the company. We're gambling on the company. We don't vote the stock. We don't follow the company closely. But a lot of the ownership, most of the ownership in public companies is either held by a small number of very wealthy individuals you know, there are three families who own more wealth than 40% of the population owns collectively. Can I guess? 99% uh, of the wealth is owned by 1% of the capital ownership is held by 1% of the population. And so a lot of the individually held wealth is owned by a very small number of people on in public companies. The rest of much of the rest of it's owned institutionally by pension funds and uh, other institutions, do they own the stock? Well, most of their trades are algorithmic. And that means that literally these shares are held for fractions of a second. Have you ever read Flash Boys um, by Michael Lewis? I have, yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Just like yeah. when they were talking about trenching pipelines across the right. country for an egg, did you get them as straight as they can for nanoseconds? Right. <laughs> right. And that really, he, he, he makes that point. This is not ownership. <laughs> this is a very sophisticated form of gambling. Well, what if you're one of the CEOs of those companies? You think, well, I'm going to pay attention to my shareholders. What shareholders? The shareholders don't vote. I mean, they could, but they don't. When there are elections, it's vote for five of five of the board members. The way that your shareholders express satisfaction or dissatisfaction is selling the shares or buying the shares, 
which they do based on very short-term expectations. I mean, think of literally <laughs> memes, right? Like that's what we're doing with memes. Literally, nanoseconds. <laughs> but for other investors, it's the next quarter is the long term. So if I'm a CEO of these companies, do I want to focus on the long term? Well, not if I want to keep my job. And by the way, the median tenure of a CEO in a public company is only five years anyway. So you have a system, highly concentrated wealth and very short-term focus. The second major ownership structure, other than the first one we talked about, is private equity, which is a growing part of the total ownership of the economy. And private equity's model is, let's go buy a company and we'll flip it in three to seven years. To Blackstone. <laughs> to, to another company. And increasingly, that's the case, is it's sold to another private equity firm. Used to be, at least they were sold to a real company. But increasingly, they're sold to another private equity firm that does the same thing. And so what do you want to do? Well, you want to increase profits as quickly as possible during the short term. If that means laying people off, cutting benefits, not investing in R&D, so be it. And their time horizon, as I said, is three to seven years. And the ownership in private equity firms, of course, is also highly concentrated amongst highly wealthy people. So you have a system in which increasingly wealth is concentrated. On the other hand, you have employees and ordinary working people, families, who say, you know, I can't put my hands on $1,000 in an emergency. That's half the population. Where the median retirement assets for somebody 54 to 64 is just over $100,000. Oh, Corey, I saw that. Uh, was it the Bloomberg article? Because I know that these stats have been rolling around for a handful yeah, of years yeah. now. But there was a Bloomberg one that came out recently. And it was like, what was it like 0.1% of the country has maybe 5 million bucks saved up, which is like kind of what people are striving for the, the nest oh, yeah. egg. And you're like, no, five, no, 5 million. Yeah. It's, it's those people could fit in a football stadium. <laughs> it's so, like, yeah, I shouldn't be laughing. That's terrifying. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, yes, that's terrifying, but it's more terrifying. People don't have 150,000, let alone five. Million. Right, 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 right. Yep. And that's most people who are at retirement age. Plus, that looked at people who have retirement assets. 50% of the private sector workforce is in no retirement plan at all. This is a disaster. And the wealth insecurity that that creates, think of that from the perspective of these people. How are they feeling? Well, it's bad for their health to feel that economically insecure. So health outcomes in this country are getting worse and worse, and we're seeing, you know, all sorts of crises with health and drug use and so on. You're also seeing, and this gets to the point about democracy, people saying, it's not fair. You know, this is a core human element. When you, when well, you, yeah, let me, let me comment on that, uh, Corey. I, I've got twin daughters. And this topic of fair is yes. like literally yes. the only thing that I have to talk about on a yes. daily basis. And it's so interesting how that is so core to all of the things you're talking about. Just what I was going to say, that if you, if, if you have kids 
or you were a kid, or you know kids, and you think, think of something whiny that kids say <laughs> when they're like, not fair, Corey. it's not fair. <laughs> and, and so we grow up and we say, you know what? It's not fair. And that, that's created an enormous amount of anger in the population in general. And we're seeing the expression of that anger in the political and social dissolution that the U.S. and other democracies have been facing. And I'm not saying, well, you know, these people have a solution or those people have a solution. It's just a but fact of what we're seeing. The left and yeah, the right yeah. are, are really pissed off. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. deservedly so. So how do we find solutions? And why did this happen in the first place? Just to wrap this up, when I first started learning about this idea, I remember in 1973, when I was just starting my first teaching job, I, I actually saw Lewis Kelso, who's the real father of ESOPs. Uh, Lewis Kelso was on 60 Minutes with Paul Samuelson, who was this famous economist at the time. And he was explaining his idea of employee stock ownership plans. And Kelso said, you know, the problem is that as we go through the next few decades, that people who own capital are going to get richer and richer and richer, and people who work for them are going to struggle to stay in place because the traditional link that had always been there in capitalist economies, that when capital investment went up, wages went up because people were more productive and you could pay them more. He said, that's going to that's gonna break because the pace of capital change is going to accelerate so quickly, labor won't be able to keep up. Paul Samuelson said, you're nuts. This is just a wacky idea from some lawyer, not an economist. It's never happened and it never will. So that was 1973. What happened? Well, real wages, inflation-adjusted wages since 1973 have barely moved. Although some of the things that we have to spend money on, even though you know we're adjusting for inflation, some things that we never thought we'd have to spend money on are you know, very long-term health care because we're living longer, or cell phones, or cable TV. There are all these other things now that have become necessities in life, but we don't have any more money to pay for them. At the same time that wages stagnated, returns to capital in real dollars grew about 8% a year. So that's why we saw this enormous and growing gap between the few very rich and everybody else. Well, and as we continue to unpack this, I want to introduce just an analogy that I think, or metaphor that I think people resonate with, Corey. It's like, when we think about our houses, I mean, our homestead is the largest asset of most Americans. Right. in the, let me comment on a couple of things. I just want to hear hear your your responses to some of my because these are the things that swim around in my head as I think about the same picture that you're thinking about. Is so um, behavioral economics, so misbehaving. You know, when behavioral economics came in, we're like we're not automatons that just do exactly what the economists say. <laughs> we're right. rational creatures. We all know that. And 
human beings don't save for the future. So when they when they check they introduce that checkbox on like the gear, like you immediately start funding your 401k. What it went from like what 12% people funding it to 80% because humans are just lazy. And so, and where I'm going with this course, I say, okay, well, that proved that like you can help humans make good decisions by putting, you know, by putting things in their life that are just natural. And so when I think mm-hmm. about our homes, right? Like the home of the dream of the American is to own a home. Well, when you own the, so as long as you have enough money for the down payment and then you get your house, let's say it's 2,500 bucks a month. And if, as long as you live there for 20 years, you're going to own your home and it's going to grow in value. So just by living your life and having time extrapolate, you're not, you're not just giving that ownership to the rent, the person that owns the house. If you're renting it has actually going to growing wealth. And like when I think about an ESOP, it's the same damn thing. It's like right. someone wor- works for 20 years and the asset grows in value as long as they got that ownership. But all of that time that is spent, if they don't own the asset, it goes to someone else. It's just pure right. time and labor that goes to a different direction. And the, the beauty of employee ownership and one of the things that appealed to me about it at the outset was – when people who are thinking about how do we deal with this wealth and income gap, it's usually, well, we'll tax the rich and give more to everybody who's not rich in one way or another, if you're a Democrat. And if you're a Republican, it's we'll loosen regulations and we'll cut taxes and that'll create economic growth and that'll help everybody. Neither of these things really ultimately solves the problem uh, either they because they're not working they don't work that well or because they're too expensive or even uh, what do you think about this score or even just saying one of those phrases pisses the other uh, right and of now the country. they're politically impossible to do anyway yeah, yeah right, right. You know, the, how many books have you read the the final chapter is if i ruled the world this is what I would. This is how we would solve the problem. That's great, but you don't rule the world. So your final chapter has to be not what could be done if you ruled the world, but what can be done within a realistic political context. Oh so, my God! You just you, like by, <laughs> you should go out to every author because like the the amount of people the last like five years, core of these books that I've been consuming, it's just more people stating their problem. To your point, not right. like what can we? Yeah, yeah, I love that man. So, so here's an idea that could actually work. And, and one of the reasons that it can work politically is it is not about rearranging existing wealth. It's about creating opportunities for the ownership of future wealth. It's not taking anybody's wealth away. In fact, the incentives to set up ownership plans make the people who are already doing quite well do quite weller. <laughs> uh, but what what's happening with an ESOP, the core idea of employee ownership is that the future profits that the employees help create to build ownership in their companies go to the employees. And depending on how, you know, whether the employees own all the company or part of it, either they all go to the company, all the employees or part of it goes to the employees. You know what I like? So, when I hear objections over the years, Corey, but like, okay, so you have like, how do you reward the capitalist risk taker? 
right? So here's here's how I always respond to that is like, hey, like the person that took the original risk or maybe took the risk from, you know, there was a, the original founder from point A to point B and then someone else came in and then took the risk from point B to point C and then maybe point C and transitions to an employee ownership company. Those people got rewarded, especially the you know the tax advantages with an ESOP, 1042, all these different mechanisms that could reward the capital risk taker. And then when you get to this point where the th- kind of the, the threshold with ESOPs, the leveraged bio and the the structure around it allows it where then the, there's enough cash flow to allow this to take place, right? And I think about it's if it's the cash flow that allows the employees to buy it, you know, through the, through future growth. It's the same reason that private equity loves going to companies above sure. 2 million and EBIT. Yeah, right. And here's, here's why I say this Corey, is because at 2 million and EBIT and above, you can afford to put debt on the books, still hire EY to go in there and fix all the crap that's broken while you sit in the conference room. And if it's that easy, you can still facilitate the employee buyership. So there, the capital that's at risk, it's just kind of different by the time you get to a cash flow that size, it, well, per se. I, I'm not. It's not an absolute comment, but you're, you're right, Ryan. That's a good point, and I, I think what what you're saying makes me think of of employee ownership at two stages of a company's life where it's typical. One stage is where the company is getting started, and people have put in a lot of capital and a lot of sweat equity and ideas, and they deserve if the company succeeds to be well rewarded for that because they've done themselves good and they've done the economy good. But if I'm in that position, I might say, well, as one wise business owner once said to me that his real epiphany was stopping to think about how much of the company he owned and to think about how much what he owned was worth. And He said, I realized that if I shared ownership with the people I was working with, that they would help me grow the company and I would own a smaller piece of a much bigger pie. Bob Beister created a company called Science Applications. And that was exactly the way that he approached it. He owned 100% of the company, had 50 employees. And each year, He would give employees ownership in a variety of different mechanisms. They could buy stock. He granted them stock options, eventually set up an ESOP, had all these things working together. When Bob retired some 40-some years later, the company had 20,000 employees and was worth $7 billion. And Bob owned about... Two and a half percent of it, and as he I would, take two and a half percent of seven billion. Two and a half percent of seven billion. <laughs> that was a pretty good deal, and plus, of course, he made money also along the way, and much more than it would have been worth if he he was convinced if he'd owned the whole thing. That's an extreme case, but giving away or sharing ten percent or twenty or thirty percent with the employees as the company is growing, really is a good idea if you do it right. And what the research shows, and venture capitalists have bought into this, at least in the tech industry, is if you're going to give ownership to people, give it to everybody. Because 
the companies that perform the best are the ones that share ownership most widely. That's partly because they tend to have different cultures about employee involvement, partly because people can be more motivated. A big part of it is retention, which is, of course, a crucial attraction and retention. Crucial issues, especially for companies relying on, on knowledge capital. And I would argue that no matter what business you're in, you rely on that. Right. To your what? customers, you're not your intellectual capital. You're who they talk to on the phone or get the email from. Yeah, I love it. And up to your comment about attraction of employees and such, I, I think it's um back to the incentive alignment. Like, so my wife, Corey, I mean, I've been doing this now for quite a while. And as we sit on our pillows talking about life and she, she was uh, not very fulfilled at her last job, decent pay, you know, like the activities, but just a lot of not, not fulfilling long-term for, for reasons, various reasons. Well, when she started looking, I was like, like literally, what is the point to go work for a company that you don't have equity in? It literally doesn't make any sense. You're just going to waste your time because you could be making a W-2 salary. Then you have to then save after taxes, your 401k, which is 19 grand. So you 19 grand every year for 20 years. And it's still, who knows if that's enough, but it's after. But if you had, you get that same setup, and then if you put that on an ESAB company, like you're literally wealthy after 20 years. I mean, it's like just that based on a choice. And I think it's fascinating that you can have all that participation. And I think you hit on a, a crucial nail on the head is that there's this perception, I think, Corey, and more so now. I mean, you've been doing this all way longer than I have, but like you say the word fair and people think it's politicized. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like it's like you're not, and I think you said the, 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 the main core part is you're not taking something away from someone right like right. so she didn't go there and take wealth away from the previous owner or, or something you know what i mean like and i think that's a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around well that you know the, the other end of employee ownership the other prime driver and the largest driver by far is where you've got an owner of a closely held business who's thinking you know it's time for me to move on or like Somebody I talked to the other day is 46, and he just sold his whole company to the to the ESOP in his company. Is I'm not retiring. It was just I thought this was a good time to to cash in, and I'm going to continue to work here and do what I like and be the CEO. So you know sometimes even that happens, but usually it's somebody in their 60s, 70s, and they're thinking you know, now's the time to sell at least part or maybe all of the company. I could sell it to a competitor. And that might work out, but sometimes, of course, there one business owner said, I was all set to sell to a competitor, really good price. We were just about to sign the documents. And I said, oh, by the way, what's going to happen to the administrative people? Where are they going to, to be located? And the buyer said, well, we don't need them anymore. So it was a, an HVAC company. And about 20 of the 70 employees would be gone. And he said, I couldn't do that. And I walked away. And I thought there's got to be another way. And I found ESOPs. That's awesome. And so that's what he did. So you could sell to a competitor. Maybe you'll get a good price. You could sell to private equity. Chances are you will get a good price. 
but we know what happens to your company often, too often with private equity. Not all the time. Sometimes they can be absolutely great, but too often they're not so great. And so what's the alternative? Well, both your competitor and private equity are buying your company for really only one reason. They think that the future profits your company will generate will repay the investment they made, whether that investment is because they borrowed money, which is the usual case with PE, or because they've taken money out of their cash reserves and bought you. So what's an ESOP doing? Well, an ESOP is a mechanism that uses that same concept, as you've alluded to, Ryan, where you use the future profits of the company to buy ownership from you. So it's no different from selling your company to anybody else, except who ends up owning the company. And Congress says, we actually want you to do this. So number one, if you use an ESOP to buy all or part of your company, and that, by the way, is a cool thing. These other buyers, they don't want to buy 30%. You want to sell 30%, you can't, pretty much. You want to sell 30% to an ESOP? Go right sure. for it, because that's, that's an easy thing to do. If you want to sell 100%, you can do that, too. So number one, you have to sell the whole company. Number two, these profits that are being used to repay this acquisition cost are not deductible to the PE firm. They are not deductible to any other buyer, but they are deductible if you're an ESOP company. Which means you're not paying taxes. <laughs> so, well, it means- <laughs> on, you, on, the, on the state and federal side. Well, there is a way, there, there's, a, there's a third, a second incentive. If you're 100% employee owned, forget about deductions. You just don't pay any taxes at all. You know what I mean? Oh, you're yeah, because you're talking about the th yeah, the partial, you're doing the deductions, but if it's, right. a, it's a whole, you're getting the pastor K-1, you don't pay any taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And again, all this depends on how you do it, and there's a bunch of rules. But you can sell to an ESOP and defer taxation on the game by reinvesting in stocks and bonds of other companies. So let's say you've got a $5 million company. If you were to do that in entirely pre-tax of after-tax dollars, that $5 million, you'd need seven point something pre-tax. You would take the $5 million, and then you would pay, if you're in California, you'd pay about a third of it. So almost 1.5, about 1.4 million would be due in taxes. You take the 3.6 million, and go buy other investments. With an ESOP, you take $5 million in profits to buy $5 million in stock, and you take your $5 million, the whole $5 million, and you go invest in other things, or maybe you give some of it to charity. Or you put it in an irrevocable trust, and then you get a step up in basis on death, and then you never pay any taxes. <laughs> yes, well, and, and it doesn't have to be an irrevocable trust. If you any of the securities you hold on to until death are stepped up in basis, so so then there'd never be a capital gains tax. Hence the bipartisan nature of this. Employees don't have to write a check because they don't have the capital. Right. The invest the original investor risk taker that grew it to create that value gets 
proportionally paid for what they they get created. fair value plus tax yeah. benefits. Yeah, and like, Corey, like so, this is where I could like when you. Yeah, I love how you said uh, two ways to change. You need to be able to have change, and it's doable. Is that how you said it? You need to be able to actually it, make it needs significant to work, change, and it needs to be politically practical. Yeah. And and I think that this is still something that it, that sits there. And when I think about what, what how I describe this to people when they say because most people, I mean, so many people don't know that you have to pay taxes when you sell a company. I mean, I literally do these presentations all the time, Corey. I'm like, you you can't put the enterprise value on your personal balance sheet <laughs> for so many reasons. It's probably a third of what the enterprise value is, or a half, or something, whatever it is. Uh, being dramatic, but the uh, like when we sell our house, our homestead, we don't have to pay taxes because it's not an investment property. And this 1042, this ability to like, you're kind of getting treated like, hey, this was your main vehicle of wealth creation. We're giving you a break when you go to monetize it. So that way there's a higher ability to transition that. I think well, it's a actually, I wrote that law. That, that's, that, was, that was the most the important The 1042 law. is it? That's the one I, I did write. I didn't write the basic ESOP law, but I, I wrote 1042 because a business owner came to me when I was working on Capitol Hill and he said, I'm I'm going to sell to an ESOP. I've gotten offers from John Deere and they would buy my company and give me John Deere stock. They'll pay me more than the ESOP is likely to pay. But also I would get John Deere stock and I wouldn't have to pay any taxes until I sold John Deere stock. It's called a Section 368 transfer. You can still do that. So he said, there's an incentive for me to sell to some big company, which means there's a disincentive for me to do the right thing and sell to an ESOP. Now, I'm going to do that anyway. And any new law won't do me any good. But wouldn't it make sense to change this law? I said, well, that makes sense, Ed. And so I said, well, what if, let's create something parallel where if you sell to an ESOP and you buy stocks and bonds of other companies that you hold, that you can do the, get the same kind of essentially 368 treatment. And so, you know, I went to my boss, was a chair of the Senate Small Business Committee at the time, Gaylord Nelson. He was a famous liberal senator. He was the founder of Earth Day. He was one of two senators who voted against getting into the Vietnam War. And so his progressive cred was pretty clear. And he said to me, huh, that sounds like socialism. And I said, no, it, it's not socialism at all. It's, it's everybody being a capitalist. And by the way, I've already talked to Senator Goldwater's staff and they like the idea. And he said, oh, Okay, well, then I, I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? So question then, because I got the, 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 the person that wrote the bill here. Why, why C-Corps? I mean, because was in, it because of in, the, how, 19, how the how everything changed over the last handful of yeah, years? Yeah, in, in 1980, when I introduced the bill, it passed in 1984, you could not have an ESOP in an S-Corporation. So the, the reason is, S-corporations are pass-through entities, unlike C-corporations. C-corporations pay tax. S-corporations say, here's our profits. We're going to pass those on 
to the owners and they'll pay the tax proportionally to their ownership. Well, what if the owners are non-taxable? Well, that's not good. That's That means nobody pays the tax. So an ESOP trust is not a taxable entity. So you couldn't have an ESOP in an S corporation. In 1997, Congress said, well, let's change that so that non-taxable entities can own S corporations if they agree to pay their share of the taxes at the highest personal income tax rate. So they made that change. So now ESOPs could have, could be in S corporations if they paid the taxes. And then the next year, Congress said, huh, if an ESOP pays its taxes and then the employees leave the ESOP and eventually get paid out, and maybe they put the money into an IRA, but eventually the money comes out and is taxable. Isn't that taxing the income twice? And they said, you know what? Actually, that's true. So let's not tax the trust because the employees will eventually get taxed when they get their ownership paid out to them. And so now it became possible to do that. But 1042 didn't apply. This rollover provision didn't apply because it said you had to be a C corporation, not a partnership. You couldn't be an S because you couldn't have an ESOP, couldn't be an LLC. So that's that's the political history of that. There have been efforts ever since to change it. And there was a real minor change past a couple of years ago. Uh, in 2027, you can defer 10% of the tax. But, it, but politically, it's been a big hill to climb on that because it's one of the just peculiarities of congressional politics. You have to have any tax, any spending bill scored uh, by the Office of Management and Budget or Congressional Budget, actually the Congressional Budget Office. And when they score this, they say, how much would it cost if every eligible company became 100% became owned oh by God. an ESA. Well, that would be amazing, <laughs> but it also ain't going to happen. Uh, but so the, the score is this enormous, you know, billions and billions of dollars in lost taxes, when the reality is it's probably a few hundred million dollars of what would actually be used. But well, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Corey so far. You can tell I love this topic about ownership and who owns what assets. How do we grow the value of those assets? How do the workers that are working at these companies grow the value and how do they participate? How can an owner who took the original risk to create the asset get mon can monetize the business in a way that is fair for them? I just love all of these topics. And I think that if you enjoy these conversations, the Intentional Growth Academy is something you got to check out because in principle number three, I break down in crazy detail and whiteboard out how private equity works, how ESOPs work. So if you want to understand how PE firms work from the general partners, raising the funds from the investors to creating the platform, creating the bolt-ons, how they make money within that whole situation, their timeline and valuations, as well as comparing that to ESOPs with how the board works, how they get the uh, funding for the original tranche at the first part of the buyout, and then how employees vest in and how all that's done, how the 1042 works. 
All of that stuff is in the Intentional Growth Academy that is normally $14.95 because you're a listener. And in the show notes, there's a link for 500 bucks off. So it's $9.95 for the do-it-yourself, 10 hours of videos, 71 videos, tons of material in the case studies and podcasts that go with it. So go check out the Intentional Growth Academy if you're interested. So with that said, I'll leave you back to the interview with Corey. Oh, and don't get me started. And by the way, why don't we just print it? Because that's all we do anyways. So it's all fic- fiction based. The What's so fascinating, you go back to your uh, your comment of you were king for a day of how these books are all written <laughs> at the end or the last comment. So what do you think of the effectiveness of it? Because like I've always said for the last, not always said, over the last handful of years, if, if, I, if I got to make one choice for legislation, I would go up and open up the 1042 for all entities. Because I look at the U.S. Census Bureau, Corey, of the uh, privately held companies, and like this is, I'm curious if you think that this is, if I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm paying attention, if my concern is warranted, I guess is my question is. So when I look at the U.S. Census Bureau of like the amount of companies, and there's 27 million entities, only six million of them have employees. Have you seen that kind of breakdown? It's only the number of companies who are big enough to do an ESOP, which is probably 20 or more employees. Some There are some smaller ones. And who have an owner who's, say, 50 or older. Uh, and there are certain industries where you can't do it. You have to have actual employees. Um, there's You state- don't need to be 50 or older, right? I mean, because... Well, that, I'm just saying that-, that the most likely candidates are businesses owned by people, 50 or owner. You can't have an ESOP for a law firm. So, that, you know, there are certain restrictions. If you look at Who's who could be a reasonable candidate? That's about 150,000 companies. Got it. Now it's important to remember that you know there's recently BDO, the accounting firm. I saw it became 42 yeah. percent employee owned, and they're on their way eventually to 100 percent. People say, "Oh well, how many companies have ESOPs?" Well, they have 10,000 employees. That's 100, 100 employee companies. So we need to think in both terms, but these companies, these 150,000 companies are a very small percentage of all the companies, but they're a very large percentage of total workforce and private companies. Got it. And so those that's the eligible group. And I think providing... And, and most of them are S, but you could convert to C and get this benefit. It's easy to do. Uh, so, well, I think Why that would they... be important, but I think it's maybe not the most Got it. biggest barrier. And it's and, and maybe it's because, like, I mean, how easily it rolled off your tongue of, oh, it's not that difficult to do. The amount of technical advisors that I have It's not across, difficult to convert from S to C. Right. That's and that's it, really simple. Right. And and then there's a math equation to be run to say, hey, what does this mean to you? And like, but Corey, like it's, it's kind of back to this whole transactional nature of so many advisors where it's like, I'm the trusted advisor of a business owner. I'm making a decent amount of money from my friend. And not that that's wrong at all. It's just, oh, by the way, now my friend wants to do an ESOP and I don't make any money off of that. And I want to make my forty dollars to $50,000 on a quality of earnings. And I have no idea how to convert to an ESOP. So like the amount of preconceived notions that I have to dismantle to have a logical conversation with someone and like even this whole S versus C 
business owners just clam up, freak out, right. and like, because it's like, like because of the the self interest that it makes sense, but it's a disheartening because <laughs> of how yeah. easily it rolled off your tongue. That, that's exactly the issue. That first of all, setting up that part of of ESOP formation is really easy. Setting up an ESOP involves a lot of complexities and costs. So, you know, let's be clear that it's going to cost you 150000 to several hundred thousand, depending on the size and complexity of the deal. And people say, well, I don't want to, that's, I don't want to deal with that. I'll just sell my business. You need to be disabused of that notion because no matter how you sell your business, it's going to cost you a lot of money to sell it. And it's going to be complicated. And chances are, if you sell to somebody else, there are going to be contingencies that are not going to be in, uh, apply if you have an ESOP. So the notion that you can sell your business cheaply, in terms of advice, is just not true. And be because for one thing, you're likely to pay a, a fee based on the percentage of the transaction to the advisors who help you do it. And you know, if it's two and a half percent of a five million dollar company, then right there you've you've paid one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars just for the success fee, not to mention the lawyer and the appraiser and the accounting firm, and the the you know the How contingency. About the deal structure? And, oh, like, yeah. like honestly, Corey, like I've always like, and here's what I here's what I continue to say, and I know it it, ch it changes with uh, interest rate environments, etc. But like, if you were to take a ESOP $10 million enterprise value compared to like a, and I don't know what the right number is, Corey, but like 12, 14, $15 million enterprise strategic buyer, deal structures and, and, and net proceeds, especially if the owner actually wanted to have a couple years of employment where they have in a salary and stuff, I'd almost take the, I mean, I would take neck and neck net proceeds, even though it might be three to $4 million more. Yeah for enjoying of an experience and net proceeds and control, like the ESOP probably 65% of the time. I don't know if that's true or not, but. When you factor in the tax deferral, you need to get about a 25% premium. Is that what it is? To come out in the same place. I've talked to M&A people and probably about 10 to 15% of companies could sell to another buyer and end up on a net basis better off than selling to an ESOP and taking the tax deferral. But Ryan, you, you raise a really important point. When I, when I used to talk to business owners, the first thing I would say is, hey, there's all these great tax benefits for selling to an ESOP. I thought that's what would convince them until one of our members said, you know, Corey, that's wrong. That's the wrong approach. Most of the people are like me. Their first question is about legacy. Sure, they want to get a fair price. They want to get a decent deal. Getting the absolute highest dollar is less important to them than legacy issues. And those legacy issues might be, what's the role of my company in the community? Maybe my company has strong social values. You know, there are a lot of ESOPs around Holland, Michigan, for instance, because there's a very strong Christian community there 
that finds ESOPs consistent with their Christian values. Or maybe your company has some strong environmental values that the buyer won't won't continue. You know, you know what's another one, Corey, that I think um, should be part of the legacy com- conversation is a method or strategy of operating your business. Because like, mm-hmm. I think about like, you know, there's like, I mean, just top of my head where you might have a, a fee only fiduciary RIA compared to someone that slings insurance. And like, there's just a fundamental difference of how they're operating their entities. That could be a misalignment. Yeah. That's, that's another part of legacy is how your employees are treated and how they might be treated if the company were sold to someone else. I hear that a lot from people who choose to do ESOPs. And then Ron, you, you raised another increasingly important point. One that I, frankly, I didn't hear a lot before. I, I guess the ultimate expression of this was two brothers who sold to an ESOP in their 70s, and they had no intention of retiring, which neither of them did until they died at 100 and 102. And, <laughs> there you go. There's some good genes. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people now that I deal with who are in their 60s or even 70s, Say well, I, I, I want to sell because it's the financially sensible thing to do at this point in my life, but I don't want to quit. I might not Love want to it. be the CEO anymore. You know, maybe I'm an engineer and I want to do engineering work, or there's a particular part of the business I'd really like to work on, or I'd like to work part time. And an ESOP lets you do that, so that's part of the legacy too. So, you know what my uh, business partner always tells? Because my business partner did an ESOP. They were in the food brokerage space, Corey. And uh, so they, they did an ESOP. They ended up selling it by pri- to private equity because the PE firm gave them an offer they couldn't refuse. And it kind of triggered this whole process. But when to highlight what you just said, because actually it is a huge component of the conversations mm-hmm. and like the Visage workshops, the key notes that I give. It's like, I think this we're finally at this stage because the baby boomers, like this re- word retirement, needs to be rethought like no one really agrees that like we're going to sit and do crosswords at perkins or sit on the beach forever like people need a purpose they need to do something and uh so the story we always tell from my uh partner's old world is is it bob's red mill or whatever the uh, oatmeal yeah he was like the mascot at the trade associations or maybe still is but he's like yeah he he did the esop and he still gets all dressed up and goes to the trade association or the trade show his 90s (laughs) that's awesome he's a role model i can tell you i'm 74 and I stopped being the director 13, no, 12 years ago. And after 30 years of being the director with no intention of retiring, and I still don't have the intention of retiring. And, and I think a lot of people like me, if you can get up every day with a sense of purpose and you like what you do, that's a blessing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people aren't going to want to retire or at least they're not going to want to work full time. Then they want, maybe they want to work full time, but they want to want to keep engaged. That's good for you to do that. I hundred percent, man. And like, who doesn't want that? Like you said, like wake up and have fun every day. And so, what I think is so interesting. This is going to lead to my next question of why don't you think that there's more ESAPs and what is going to be some of our barriers, Corey? But here's what I here's what I've been experiencing, and it's. Really fascinating, Corey, because I've been at this for almost 10 years, trying to help people view their company as an asset. And it, it took me a long time to even come into that phrase, which is actually resonating with people. And 
one of the reasons that I'm like, I've been, it's such a psychological, we're dealing with psychology here, in my opinion, kind of like that whole investing of the misbehaving of behavioral economics, Corey. And I, and I, I think you're based on your research and your material, you, you, you resonate with it is that you have these people that my dad and I, before we sold our company, Corey, I was in the same boat. We had a hundred employees, 20 million in revenue. And my dad kept saying, I want out, I want out, I want out. We're, you know, he, every weekly meeting we're hearing that. And I hear that all the time. People have been calling me for uh, years and for a long time, I'd try and solve their problem, Corey. And then I realized they don't know what they want out of. And there's this concept. I mean, I did not invent this. Jack Stack talks about a lot of people talking about it in different ways, but I now won't, I will not entertain that, that comment. I'm like, cause I say, what do you want out of? Cause what I hear Corey is most people call me and they're complaining about their job, essentially not their asset. There's, or there's, there's essentially this job or the asset. Are you talking about your job and all the things that have to do with your duties? Or do you want out of your financial asset? Cause there's a risk and you don't know the trade-offs of distributions versus reinvestment and it's usually this, like, it's all commingled. So now, Corey, what I do is I force everybody in the first part of our workshop or our training and presentations is we have to distinguish our job from our, our asset because mm. they can have par- they have totally different paths. So what I'm trying to do is separate like left brain, right brain and be like, hey, because like the reason I'm going into this is like people that I have engaged with, it's like they think you have to pull the rip cord and you're completely out. They don't know the Bob's Red Mill stuff. Like you can actually monetize your ass and keep eating the mascot if you want, or the complete inverse, where if you wanted to like completely get out of your role, be on the chair and monetize, like it's just possible to have this combination, and people don't know that, which is therefore they don't even think. So they're kind of leading into what do you think some of the challenges are of the psych, uh, maybe the psychology behind ESOPs or like, why are there not more ESOPs yeah. given everything we've talked about? I can't help but remark on Bob's Red Mill that it still lets you, and as in Bob's case, go to, I think it was Scotland to receive the Golden Spurtle Award. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason to stay which, for which, sure. Right, which is the much sought award for the best oatmeal. <laughs> or, or as they That's would awesome. say, the best porridge. Uh, and the That's golden awesome. spurtle is this thing that you stay the porridge. <laughs> That's awesome. So who, wouldn't, who wouldn't want that opportunity? That's a reason to stay 100%. So, of course, I've thought about this a lot and been frustrated about it a lot for 45 years is why aren't there more? If it's such a good idea, it works for employees, it works. And, and, and when I say it works, I should be clear, companies with ESOPs grow about 2.5% per year faster than would have been expected lay off about one-third to one-fifth the employees that other companies would, depending on the year, and employees have three times the retirement assets, and retention rates are at least twice as high. So yeah, it really does work. And it's got all these tax benefits. So why aren't there more of them? Well, Ron, you nailed a big part of it. And he said, the advisor you go to probably doesn't know how an ESOP works very well or at all. And so say, so I want to sell my business. I heard about this ESOP thing, or I haven't heard about it at all. Well, if, if you ask them about the ESOP and they're not an expert, they think, well, if you do an ESOP, you might not use me. So I'm going to tell you that it's probably not a good idea. 
obviously not everybody's going to do that, but it's human nature, as you said. And if I don't know, human nature also tends to say, if I don't understand something, um, and I'll bet we've all done this, I've done it, if I don't understand, it's probably not a good idea because it's kind of work then to try to figure out. So it's, it's easier just to say it's probably not a good idea if I bother with it. There are also advisors who, as I said, make their money on a success fee. And sometimes ESOP advisors will charge this depending on what you're looking for from them. But if you go to sell your business conventionally through an M&A or a brokerage firm, they are going to charge you a success fee of 2.5% to 5% of the sale. If you go to them and say, hey, I found a buyer, it's called an ESOP. I just need you to help me set it up. And they say, okay, well, we're going to charge you 3% of the transaction for finding the buyer you just told us about. So well, I'm not going to pay that. I'm just going to hire the people on an hourly basis. So there's a real disincentive for people to tell the f- business yeah. owners that you can do this. And this is a, a tremendous difficulty. Also, the concept itself takes some explaining. And, you know, you've pointed out that sometimes you get these blank stares or people are kind of confused. And I understand that. The core concepts are really quite simple. But most of the people you go to to get the introductory concept aren't real good at making the you know the elevator explanation of ESOPs. You know, the Mark Twain once said the most boring people are the people with good memories. And <laughs> I don't know if I've heard that. Yeah. And when you're when I, when I used to be a teacher, I remember I was teaching a class on statistical techniques. And I looked at the class, I was like 24 in my first year of teaching, and they were really confused. And I realized to my shock that words and concepts that were second nature to me now were things they didn't understand, nor did I when I was their age. It's hard to remember what you didn't once know. And when you're an expert, it's hard to go back to that really basic, basic conversation. And so people tend to be, that's oh, too complicated. So then the third problem is more of a financial one where you've got to, and this is only for some sellers. Some sellers would say, I like the idea of an ESOP. You know, I'm 72, got some health issues. If I want to sell 100% of the company, the bank will loan me part of it. The rest I'm going to have to take a note over several years. I don't know if I want to, if I can wait several years. I want to get, I need to get the money up front, or I'd prefer to get the money up front. And there isn't the, there isn't a way to do that. What, there's a bill in Congress now called the Employee Equity Investment Act. And I, w- I helped to sort of conceptualize that, but other people are really pushing it. Uh, Ownership America, particularly. And that bill would create investment corporations geared towards investing in ESOP companies, either with equity or more commonly with debt. 
with some like, is it just like mes financing to replace the seller note or something like that exactly except that this would have some government guarantee portion almost like so an sba loan it, behind it just like an sbic uh oh cool investment. so the, the these these entities would be just like sbic's but focused on employee ownership so that the amount that they could loan would be larger at a lower interest rate and help facilitate some of these transactions. So those two things are are things I think that could really move the ball forward. But I, I, I do think the most important thing really is just getting people to know what this is. And and one of the frustrations, we've talked about how politically nonpartisan this is. It's an idea whose support is extremely wide and extremely shallow. There are with one exception, Dean Phillips from Minnesota, my daughter. Oh no, that's where I'm at. Oh really? <laughs> I would give you his address. <laughs> He's my daughter's congressman, and my my uh, granddaughter, who's a teenager, is on his teen advisory council. Uh, but Dean Phillips is a really and Jared Polis, the governor of California of Colorado, they're big promoters of employee ownership. But other than that. There aren't politicians who say it's not just a good idea, it's an important idea. And that's really lacking. And that's really important for that to happen. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I like, as I, as I shot you the note, Corey, and then I want to, I want to comment on that, just kind of the macro picture, how important it is. And then I want to comment and just tell, tell you a quick story of how, cause I love how you broke down what the challenges are, share my experience over the last 10 years, because I think it'd be interesting to hear how you reconcile it. it but like the, from the macro picture, I, it, like, I don't know what else, what else is the solution, right? Like we have now cars make, you know, a, a Denali for an SUV is 110 grand. I mean, I had a friend that got a quote for their pool for 150. I mean, they, there's they, like, where are the consumers going to come from if they don't have any money? I just seriously want to know like, the people in these boardrooms, like, Who's going to be buying your stuff? <laughs> so I literally just want to understand. That's what Henry Ford and, asked. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I'm so going back to you know just I just want to share with you a, a, a quick couple minute story, Corey, of the the journey that of how I came to the conclusion that you that that, that you have of kind of the the uh, the reason that it hasn't taken uh, more traction. And for the listeners and might be interested in hearing the story, I don't think it should be too duplicative, but, um, so Corey, like it's so fascinating. So I got in after we sold and had all gutted the company and just paid a bunch of taxes, all of the experiences that I wish I would have avoided. And I could have done something like this. And so I, I, I wanted to go help, you know, other business owners, Bo Burlingham, small giants. So that's why I got onto all this stuff because I was like, there had to have been an alternative way for my father and I, and too late, didn't have all, the, I mean, I, I was in Vistage, we we're 20 million in revenue, had all these advisors that were very skilled and were big, big shots because of the size of our company. No one brought it up. No one suggested, like all of the same things that you talked about. So went through all the, the challenges emotionally and financially selling the company. Five years to kind of figuring out my life. Got to the point where we started our Kona in 2018 with this, the training program was the first part that we had. And I had called it the growth and exit framework. Corey. And I mean, I got my exit planning certification, you name all these certifications I got. And I kept realizing I was like one of the only business previous business owners in any of these certifications. 
And I'm like, well, has anybody else managed payroll? Like we had a quarter million dollar payroll, a couple million dollars in inventory. You know, I mean, like <laughs> this is like it was a machine. And I so I didn't know all the technical stuff. So I was getting caught up on that, calling it the growth and exit framework, growth, you know, exit plan, all this stuff is starting to take hold because of the baby boomers and all the advisors wanting more AUM or more transactions or however they were going to monetize this baby boomer issue. Well, what I've now, so fast forward 10 years, essentially, Corey, here's what I have realized after thousands of meetings, hundreds of podcasts, hundreds of keynotes, there's been 500 and to almost 600 people that have been through our training program. The problem that I was having, Corey, I was sitting there and this guy loved our program and the growth and exit framework binder was sitting on his desk. And he's like, Ryan, I can't have this binder on my desk. And we're not brokers, Corey, like we're not investment bankers, not brokers. We're not like, and I had like one of my main mandates is I do not want and will not sacrifice the integrity of our offering to have a tie to an outcome for the owner. Because Corey, if you were a client of ours and you came to me and said, I want to tank this thing in the next 12 months, we're going to help you identify your goal and execute your goal, whatever it is. I don't care. I just want you to get what you want to be happy because you're the business owner. So when I heard that guy say that, it was like, I mean, truly, I had no vested outcome other than I wanted him to get what he wanted. And it it was this word exit. And what happened over and over and I that I realized that because what we had said, people did not know the difference between their leadership role and their ownership role. So they think it's all one. So when they hear the word exit, they think of the ripcord shot out of the parachute and they think of death, despair, they don't want to retire because of all the reasons we just talked about. And like it was over and over psychological issues that they had where my company wasn't growing at all. And I changed. The, so all I did, Corey, is four years ago, I changed the program title from growth and exit framework to intentional growth, view and run your company like a financial asset and the thing took off. <laughs> And isn't that funny? So here's what here's and here's why I, I got Steve Stork and uh, him and I over the last four years have built a really good relationship. He did the ESOP mini series with me and he went through our program and I was like, Steve, here's what's going on. Because like, Corey, out of like the 500 some people that have been through the program, half of them want to do an ESOP. Wow. We need more. Think about And well, here's but here's and this is why I think it's like what you had said is so spot on because I'm hearing, so here's what's happening, Corey, is the people that used to call me every day and say, I want out, they have no energy, they're totally burnt out, and usually the company is a pain in the ass for cash flow, working capital, and they're just strapped from cash, energy, good people, and then if I were to look at you and be hey, Corey, you're burnt out, by the way, all you have to do is you know, put all your money back into the company for five years, hire a new CEO, launch a new product, put a new ERP system, and then you can get the valuation you want in seven years. And you do an ESAP, you get half up front. And they're like, Ryan, I just told you I hate this company. So what's interesting, Corey, to me, because it's a psychological thing, is I have these people coming through the program. So it's, what's super fascinating about the program title is intentional growth, view and run the company like a financial asset. So people are coming to us now who want to grow with the end in mind, which is creating an asset that they have choices with. That's what, so it's not exit. We're not like, we're not hammering this exit. Principle number three is understand your exit options and how it impacts your valuation, your timeline, and what you want from your legacy. So it's happening, Corey. And here's what's fascinating because we're leaning into the entrepreneur psyche, I think, is if you build a good company, 
and the intrinsic financial value of your company based on the future cash flows, not some strategic premium or some gutting of the company, but you build a good company. What a concept. While you have energy and capital and time, you can at least have your point B. So here's what I'm trying to encourage everybody is if you wanted to get to 2 million in EBITDA and the six multiple, it's $12 million in six years, even if you don't want to do an ESAP, wouldn't you still like to monetize your company? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, look at this is 100% in control of you. As long as you invest in the right things that you're tracking on the way there. So these people are excited because they have control. And if they can hit their financial freedom number, Corey, with half of the money at, at closing. And here's the second part of this. So as people are now gravitating towards that concept, it's one of the big components of our program that I didn't realize was one of the main sticking points is how are we as entrepreneurs or business owners or investors supposed to plan for our future if we don't know what our stuff is worth? <laughs> and so many entrepreneurs who are not from Wall Street don't know how valuations work. So a disproportionate amount of our training teaches on how the EBITDA and future multiples work because they didn't know how to actually impact that impact that value because it was some advisor that pulled it out of their unicorn's butt and said, here's your valuation. It's an 80-page report. And they're like, I just know how to sell copiers, which is what my dad and I did. So it's this weird psychological thing where through education, the owner's taking more control. They realize how valuations work and they have enough time. So it's just this fascinating deal. And then what they're allowed, what I'm watching, Corey, they have the confidence and resources to to spot the CPA, banker, wealth manager who says you shouldn't do one for a selfish reason. It's just a psychological thing. It's so fascinating to me, Corey, because yeah. if someone calls me up and says I want out and they don't have time, it's just like, well, it's because when they don't have the time and they're burnt out, Corey, I see that the valuation is not going to be where they want it to be. And it's too late at that point. Right. Right. That's true. Anyways, I just thought I'd share that because I just thought like literally the what started that whole domino chain of dominoes was changing the title. <laughs> legitimately it. Yeah, it's a small small changes can make big differences. What do you what do you as we're getting to a close here? What do you um, anticipate as the next couple big moves or what you're excited for or hope for? as you with the book that you wrote, I mean, like you're still doing this 13 years after you quote unquote retired. So what, 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 what are the big things that you're focused on? When I was growing up, the newspaper in Denver, there was a quote from the founder of the paper saying there's no hope for the satisfied man, which has always kind of resonated with me. And I understand that, that there always has to be something else to strive for. And we've made a lot of progress with employee ownership. There's 14 million people participating in ESOPs and maybe 20-some million in other forms altogether in forms of broad-based ownership. It's really changed a lot of people's lives. You, know, you talk about Jack Stack and SRC Holdings, which just celebrated its 40th ESOP anniversary by announcing their stock price has grown a cumulative over 1 million percent. <laughs> what is it? What's the, good, what's the share price now? Because I think when he was on the podcast, he told me, because he's been on it twice, Corey, he said it was one penny when he did it. Ten and cents, then that was six, yeah. 
Yeah, it was like sixteen hundred bucks a share or something like that. I think. Yeah, I, I forgot what, because there's a bit. It's split a number of times, so it's, <laughs> it's so split an adjusted number is really big. So yeah, there's been a lot of accomplishments. There's been a lot of people leaving with hundreds of thousands of dollars or more from employee-owned companies, and the companies have done better. And if you go to our conferences, you'll see a lot of excited people who just like leading employee ownership companies a whole lot better. It's more fun than leading a conventional company. So lots of really good things. The idea spread to the UK, where it's growing even faster there than it is here. We're seeing states start to pass employee ownership legislation, but we're still at a tiny percentage. If you look at just the the percentage of ownership in private companies that are ESOP-owned, there's about 6,000 companies with about 2.5 million employees. All the other employees of that 14 million are in public companies that have much smaller ESOPs. Why, aren't, why isn't there five times that number, 10 times that number? And it's frustrating. I think the most important things that we can do are to get that information out there. And this is what you're doing is one way to do that. I, the, there was a bill I wrote in 1987, and in 2002, it became law called the Work <laughs> Act. Sometimes you just have to persist. Oh, my God, good for you. <laughs> it became law, and it provides funding to st for states to create the sort of thing Steve Storkin is doing, create employee outreach programs at the, at the ground level in states. It would be a huge deal. Uh, it passed, but it hasn't gotten funding yet, and we don't know if it will get funding. So write your congressman, fund the Work Act. Uh, getting more states to do what Colorado and Washington have done to have programs to spread the word, but also to help cover some of the initial feasibility costs of doing these plans. This can be enormously helpful in smoothing the, the process. So if, you, if you're really motivated about employee ownership, go talk to your state legislator and say, hey, here's an idea I can give you, we can help you and give you sample legislation. Other states have done this. It's bipartisan. It's something you can hang your hat on and say, hey, I did this. So we'd love to see more of that happen. But if you have people listening to this who like the idea, the single best thing that you can do immediately is go tell other people, hey, I heard this podcast. I heard about this website. I read this book. It's a really interesting idea. Let's talk about it. Well, I'm glad that I was able to help in that that mission. And uh, yeah, so to Corey's point, share this podcast with one person that you think might be interested. And then if people are really curious, you can always check out and we'll put in the show notes, uh, the four part mini series that Steve Storkin and I did. <laughs> Corey, after I've been doing these workshops, be like, oh, I'm really interested. I'm like, well, there's literally nine and a half hours of the interviews with me and Steve and all these people. So like, People can dive into the technical parts of it, but I think you did a really good job at painting the big picture here. And you can go to our website. It's nceo.org. There's lots of information from basic to complicated, depending on where you are. Uh, we have lots of stuff that you can get without being a member and more stuff if you join. Uh, and if you are a member, you can contact us anytime with questions. We have 
conferences, workshops, webinars, all sorts of resources for you. Corey, thank you so much. Uh, we'll have all those links in the show notes. Thank I appreciate you, being on. I have one final question. And uh, it's I ask, I've asked hundreds of people this question of what intentional means for them because it's the name of the show. And uh, I'm curious. So intentional, what would what is uh, what comes to mind when you hear that word? I love that word. I think that's a, a really important thing to think about. And for me, as I said, ever since I've been in the working world, my intention hopefully I've made some progress on that is to do something that makes other people's lives better. Because I think there is nothing for me and I suspect for most people that makes you feel better about the life you've lived than feeling that you've made other people's lives better. Well, on that note, I don't know if there's anything else that should be said. <laughs> Corey, this is uh, this has been an absolute pleasure and honor. Thank you for everything you've too, done Ryan. over the decades. All right. Thank you so much. Wow, what a wild ride from a conversation. I could have talked to Corey about this topic forever. The couple takeaways I would have is that, first of all, I, I, I just love understanding who owns what and how do we grow assets and allow the people that took the risk and do the hard work to get rewarded and paid for their hard work. And employee ownership is a unique way of allowing both the person that took the risk and the people doing the work to benefit. If you are interested in one learning more, as I mentioned in the middle of the podcast, the commercial, that if you're interested in diving into the Intentional Growth Academy to learn how ESOPs, how ownership, valuations, private equity, finance works, and just do it yourself, or at least drink through the fire hose, go check out the Intentional Growth Academy. It's normally $1,500, but there's a $500 coupon off, so it's $995 for the listeners, and it's in the show notes, and that's where you get the 10 hours, the 71 videos, the case studies, the deep dive, and the whiteboards of all this stuff if you want to uh, learn first. If you're interested in rolling up your sleeves and understanding how your company financials are right now, we offer a complimentary financial assessment for qualified people that are interested in our financial dashboard offering, where we build out that financial roadmap to the target valuation for clients. And all you have to do is schedule a discovery call with myself. The link is in the show notes below. And again, we're just going to walk through your situation, what you're looking for. I'll ask you a couple of questions. And if it's a fit, then I'll move you off to my team where they'll dive in and give you a demo of the dashboard and do that complimentary assessment with your company's numbers. And there's no obligation to work with us. It's just a way of exploring if there's a fit. So I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. I loved it. Stay tuned to next week where we are diving into our quarterly economic immersion acquisition update where I've got ITR Economics back on the podcast. Butcher Joseph talking about what's going on with deal volume, what's going on with multiples, with debt levels, deal structures in the transaction world. And then I also have on the show the National Center for the Middle Market with their mid-year survey of a 1,000 CEOs and the sediment of what's going on, as well as Jeff Campbell from AI Commerce talking about what's going on in e-commerce and retail. So we have a lot in store for you next week, and I appreciate your support. So I hope we have a wonderful week, and I will see you next week.